Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and welcome to episode 90 of Cage Rage, a Nicholas Cage podcast. It's the show in which I, your humble host and guide, Daryl Edge, take you, dear listener, on the journey to true Cage Nirvana. And what is true Cage Nirvana, you may ask? Well, it is only the highest, most purest, most ethereal, most sensual, most everything is, especially sexual form of being that one can achieve, only possible, of course, by watching every single movie the man I call the golden hog of Hollywood, Nicolas Cage, has ever been in. Look at us, here we are, we're in the 90s now, we're in the 90s, um, what a... What a time to be alive. 90 episodes of this nonsense that I call the podcast. Uh, and thank you for joining along if you have been. And what a better way to kick off the 90s um, after a, a massive old month for your boy than taking a look at 2018 Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Um, now with this episode released, uh, you can go back and listen to last week's episode if you'd like, thoroughly recommend it, where I chatted with Kevin Etten and Tom Gormick and the co-writers and director of The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, because, well, Massive Talent is now released and I've seen it twice and it's the greatest movie that's ever been, there'll never be a better movie than this, so go out and support that movie, support Nicolas Cage in cinemas, this is what we're here for, people. But with that aside... This week, episode 90, of course, again, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, I'm joined by M of the Verbal Diorama podcast, um, and it was an absolute pleasure to have M on the journey to true cage nirvana. We pretty much spend an hour and a half gushing about this movie, because if you haven't seen it, it's very, very good. We're talking all about uh, this movie, we're talking about the animation, we're talking about different iterations of Spider-Man and cross-media in the years. And, of course, Nicolas Cage's turn here as Spider-Man Noir, the egg-cream-drinking, Nazi-punching, Rubik's Cube-solving son of a gun. As ever, a joy to put this one together. Hopefully you'll enjoy it as well. As ever, you can find me on all the usual streaming platforms, Apple, Podchaser, Spotify, Google, Amazon, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you enjoy the episode, please give it a rating and leave a review. It's very much appreciated and very much helps. Also on TikTok as well, you can find me at Cage Rage Podcast on TikTok. Popping some Nick Cage clips up on there and the like. Uh, still don't understand it because I'm too old for it, but some people seem to like it, so come on and get involved. And with that all said and done, let's get right into this week's episode. It's episode 90. Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Enjoy. Duh. It's back to 2018 this week for the animated superhero feature Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. This week, Cage voices Spider-Man Noir, an alternate Spider-Man from the 1930s who assists in a massive multiversal spider mission. 
joining me on the journey to true cage nirvana this week to see if this is a spider for all mankind or if it should just be squashed writer and host of the verbal diorama podcast M. thank you so much for joining how are you doing today Hi, Daryl. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, now, as we start off with all these um, these crazy podcasts, well, this I call this a podcast. I, who knows what this is at this point? Eighty odd episodes in, it's just Nick Cage madness. Now, it's it's the multiverse is bleeding into my life because Nick Cage is everywhere. Well, that's uh, what the man himself would want, surely. I'm calling for a Nick Cage multiverse. I, th- I, f- I feel like. <laughs> You know, we're on the cusp. We've got Into the Spider-Verse adaptation, uh, unbearable weight of massive talent. The Nick Cage multiverse is here, and we're just trying to put the pieces together. What a time to be alive, honestly. Multiverse aside, before we get into all of this, um, I'm always keen to find out when, uh, especially when new guests come on this uh, weird and wonderful journey to True Cage Nirvana this uh, with me as well. Um for yourself, M, uh, Nick Cage, rate, hate, tolerate, uh, where do you stand on the man I call the Golden Hog of Hollywood? I think Nicolas Cage is such a fascinating person because he is such an enigma in that he does all of these different roles and yet he's Nicolas Cage in all of them and he's also a character in all of them, but he's also Nicolas Cage. And it's it's really weird. Like, how can he be two people at once? Um, how can he be Stanley Goodspeed and Nicolas Cage at the same time? It's crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, it, I, I will start off by saying I'm definitely not the biggest fan of Nicolas Cage because I think I'm talking to the biggest fan of Nicolas Cage. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, my knowledge of him and his movies is Definitely not as great as, well, yourself and and other people. Um, I can't say I've actually seen that many of his movies. I've mainly seen kind of the really big blockbuster sure. movies like um, like Conair and The Rock. Uh, that, that kind of era of Cage is mm-hmm. the era of Cage that I kind of grew up with and, and that I know. Um, so... <laughs> So yeah, I I, would, I definitely wouldn't say I hate because hate is a very strong word, and I think I I try to be a podcaster who's tr- quite positive about things. There's mm-hmm. always something to like about everything, um, and there's definitely always something to like about Nicolas Cage and and what he does because I th- I genuinely think he is absolutely fascinating. Um, but I I can't say that that I love him either because. If I did, then I probably would have seen more of his movies. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and and maybe kind of not stuck to the, you know, big blockbuster movies. Kick-Ass is another one that I really like because I think he's great in Kick-Ass. Um, but, yeah, and then I absolutely love this movie that we're talking about. Uh, not so much for Nicolas Cage, but I think Nicolas Cage is absolutely perfect in this movie as you know as a voice actor i think he brings it's weird he brings like color to spider-man noir (laughs) and because he's so enigmatic and um so yeah i wouldn't say i tolerate him either it's maybe a bit between love and tolerate can i do that 
I'll allow Can I be it. in between? I'll, Thank you. I'll allow it. I'll, I'll allow us to go on the fence. You know, it, it's a one-time <laughs> deal. It's a one-time <laughs> deal. Thank you. Because um, <laughs> I just feel like tolerate is maybe a bit low. I don't know. It's. Uh, I think this is part of why he's always so fascinating as well, because I think, um, you know, the, there are actors that we all know and recognise, but I think it is... Certainly what I found, Nicolas Cage, um, and I think to use the extremes, I think mostly because they rhyme and they sound catchy, rate, hate, tolerate, um, it's mostly because I think he's one of the few actors that even, um, you know, if you're a lunatic like me and you're trying to watch everything he's been in, or, or you've only seen like a few of the films here and there, he's still an actor that like everyone knows and everyone has an opinion about. And um, I, I struggle to think of... Uh, that many actors who are working who sort of elicit the same response that he um, generates from people even over like 40 years into the business um, which is kind of like it, it's it's the unquantifiable enduring magic of Cage um, which is which I think one day scientists are going to try and harness this and realise it is the, literally the cure for everything um, the pure, unrefined power of Cage, but even with only like seen like I guess some select movies. I think you, you mentioned a few like sort of The Rock and sort of Conair there. A truly golden era of Cage, and I think mm-hmm. again, and he's kind of one of these people that you know he's done a lot of movies, but I think until you start looking into it, you never realise just how many that he's done, and he's sort of continuing to do as well. Um, so I think it was got. I think I said before, Gone in sixty seconds was probably the first time I became aware of him. And then just going back through all these movies as well, it's been, uh, I mean, an, an incredible journey so far. Uh, if nothing more, then I sort of joke sometimes just to see the evolution of his hair since the eighties to now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, obviously we don't get any cage hair in this. We get a lovely little hat though. Um, and as you said, I think I think he is. A perfect choice um, for Spider-Man Noir. Um, now, as we sort of, you know, we, we slowly get into this. I think it's fair to say um, you've you've seen this film before. Oh, absolutely! I love this movie. <laughs> uh, this is one of my favourite animated movies ever, and um, and also, and this might be controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is the best Spider-Man movie, uh, and obviously, we've had a recent Spider-Man movie. Um, that came out quite recently that a lot of people loved. This is still better than that. Uh, I I adore this. And so when you contacted me and <laughs> you said, do you want to come on my podcast and talk about Spider-Man? Uh, yeah, I was, was going to say, <laughs> I was going to say a different Spider-Man movie there. Need to get the right one in my head. Um, Spider-Man is the Spider-Verse. I was like, yes, please. Yes, please. When can I sign up? I just, it was like, you just knew. And I was like, oh my God. This is this is crazy. Like you've read my mind. This is what I want. So yeah, I I adore this movie, and I I adore it on so many levels. But just as a, a true technical achievement, it's unsurpassed for me. It, it's one of these movies that just sometimes I think, especially on the first watch, I think you just can't truly appreciate how much is happening in this film um because this was only a second watch for me today um 
unfortunately, a hands up admission time. I, I sort of completely missed the boat on this when it came out in cinemas. Um, so I, I knew it had come out, but it almost kind of didn't seem like it was... Not that it wasn't going to be good, but it wasn't made out to be like a, like a massive kind of deal. It's almost as if maybe the studios didn't weren't expecting sort of the reception that it got. I'm not too sure. So we kind of just came and went and then ended up watching it on Netflix. And it's one of those sort of facepalm moments. Like, why, why did I not go to see this at the cinema? What was I thinking? Where was I? Where was my mind at during during that December where it came out? Um, I think that that was about two-ish, year and a half, two-ish years ago that I saw it on Netflix. And I was like... This is this this is incredible, and I think I think it, maybe just on the Nick Cage inclusion, I have to agree that this could well be the the best Spider-Man film. Um, and I think I think I've asked how many how many times have like, have you sort of seen this film now? Because I know you, this is one that you rate so highly in such high regard. Yeah, uh, I've probably seen this. I'm gonna say maybe a. About eight times um and that included seeing it at the cinema when it came out um and i remember as well uh i went on my own to the cinema to see this um and the cinema that i went to was i mean i think it was maybe about two or three weeks after it had come out but the, the actual showing itself was completely dead like there was no one else there apart from like a couple of other people and so i kind of Walked it. To be fair, it was like a, a weekday afternoon, so it it wasn't really peak time. But mm-hmm. but still, I I kind of went in there had a couple of expectations because I'm a huge Marvel nerd just generally, um, and I've I've enjoyed pretty much all of the Spider Man movies that have come before. Some are better than others, um, but I, I've always found something to enjoy in them. Uh, I like. Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man. I know, again, that's a very controversial opinion because not many people do, <laughs> but I find those movies enjoyable. Yeah. First one's better than the second, but and the Tobey Maguire movies, Spider-Man 2 is one of the best Spider-Man movies. And um, and again, with the Tom Holland stuff, I find a lot to enjoy in a Spider-Man movie. But for me, kind of because it was animated and because I am generally such a huge fan of animation, um, this just spoke to me on so many levels. And then I found out about the um, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller inclusion. Huge fan of them as well. Phil Lord obviously wrote this movie. And then I was like, the cast in this movie? I was like, oh my God, it's got Jake Johnson in it. It's got Mahershala Ali in it. It's got Haley Steinfeld in it. And I was like, and obviously Nicolas Cage as well. And I was like, this is something I need to see. And so I was one of those people. I went to the cinema just... Seeing it on the big screen just blew me away because this is a movie that kind of does benefit from a, a big screen because there's mm. so much going on, um, literally every single frame. Um, I did uh, an episode on my podcast for this movie. It was a long time ago. Uh, it was over 100 episodes ago, actually. It was um, episode 32, so it was a while ago. And I think I said in that episode that literally you could take any frame of this movie and you could make a still image of that frame and you could put it on your wall and it would literally be a piece of art and literally every single frame in this movie is a work of art and I actually do have (laughs) it still from this movie on uh, on my chimney breast in my living room that's kind of how much I love this movie it's literally art in my house 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, and the other thing that I find from this movie is, even though I've seen it, you know, quite a few times, I wouldn't say obviously I've seen other movies more than I've seen this for definite, but you get something different out of every watch for me. Um, like you notice little things that maybe you didn't notice before, like tiny little things in the animation. Um, one of the things I distinctly remember noticing on, I think it was like rewatch number five or something was when they throw the bagel and it hits the security guard and it just says, it's like an onomatopoeia and it just says bagel. <laughs> and it's just tiny little things like that. It just, you miss and then you get it on a rewatch. And, and this movie is imminently rewatchable as well, I think. It, it's, I think it's one of those movies that is going to, um, and, and I feel the trajectory of this episode is we're going to be gushing about this for the best part. <laughs> of I gush hour. about a lot of things. <laughs> it's, it is one of these movies that I think is going to go down as timeless and infinitely rewatchable. Um, and I sort of distinctly remember, um, because I'm by no means like uh, an animation expert or anything like that. Um, my only claim is that I believe Nicholas, Ho- Nicholas Hogg, uh, Nic- Nicholas the Golden Hog Cage, I'm gushing over my own words now. <laughs> my only claim is that I believe Nicholas Cage is the greatest actor of our generation. Um, and I just remember on the first watch just just being sort of blown away by the animation um, and just sort of thinking to myself, I remember clearly thinking to myself as like, this is unlike anything I've seen visually before. Like the, like the visuals on this are a language unto itself, and um, you look into the the animation behind this, and it's just the the level and the the detail and the the number of people working on this. I think just to make like a second or sort of two seconds of animation in this. Um, was it was is it about like a week it took to make like a second of, yep. of animation? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's one of the things that I find so fascinating about this movie. And to be fair, about pretty much any animated movie ever is the level of detail that goes in and the level of work. And it kind of makes me a little bit cross, actually, that so many people still disregard animation. And, you know, they'll they'll just say, oh, but it's, it's just a kid's movie. This is not a kid's movie. This is a family movie. This is something that everyone can enjoy. Mm-hmm. But animation has never been just for children and it never will be just for children. And, and also animation is not a genre. That's something else that I'm very, very firm on uh, that I talk about a lot on my podcast. Um, I don't just obviously have an animation podcast. I talk about everything. But I do specifically like to focus on animation. Um, I do like specific animation seasons because I really feel like animation is given a, a very short shift um, especially, um, you know, not just by casual viewers, but, but by the industry itself. Um, mm. there was a comment I kind of, um, I think made, um, at the Oscars or just after the Oscars or something about, about it being for kids. And, and it's just, if that's what the industry thinks, then of course that's what viewers are going to think. But fundamentally you look at something like Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and yes, you can look at all of the other live action Spider-Man movies and they are great. And they do great things uh, and they rely so heavily on these wonderful effects and, and they look brilliant. But Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is so unique. It could not be filmed in live action. There is no way this could be pulled off in live action. This is an absolutely unique medium for telling a story. Um, and whenever someone says to me about, oh, you know, oh, cartoons, they're just for kids and all of that. This is, this is the movie that I kind of say, well, look at this. 
You can't tell me that this is not an absolute work of art, that this is not deserving of all of the accolades. Sorry, I'm getting quite passionate about this now because I do. <laughs> please, I do please get do. quite passionate about this sort of this is how this is, I guess, how you feel about Nicolas Cage. This is kind of the passion <laughs> coming out now. Um, but it's it's true. This could not be a live action movie mm-hmm. because the live action Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Spider-Man's Spider-Man movie. Yeah, let's say that. Live action <laughs> Spider-Man movies. Um they they do something very specific. And and I loved No Way Home. I thought it was absolutely amazing. But, uh, oh, not No Way Home. No, it is No Way Home. Getting confused between all these Spider-Man movies now. Um, <laughs> but this is such a unique experience. And the way that they did it, there's just so much thought put in. So every single character movement, you know, the fact that the, the background animation is, is 24 frames per second, so it's animated on ones, but the characters are animated on two, so 12 frames per second. And that's also dependent on how experienced each character is. So Miles is animated on twos to show his inexperience. And then in the same scene, you've got a character like Peter B. Parker, who is experienced, animated on ones. So Peter B. Parker looks fluid and Miles doesn't because that's like a really cool way to show how Miles is really struggling with these powers and he doesn't know what to do. Um, And... Little things like that, you wouldn't think that that would make a difference to the way the animation looks, but it really genuinely does. Um, and there's, there's so many amazing things about the animation in this movie. Uh, I kind of I feel like I maybe don't want to go too deep down that rabbit hole right now, because <laughs> otherwise this would literally just be an episode of your podcast with me talking about the amazing animation of this movie. But it's just kind of an example of the real thought that they actually put into the animation of this movie. I mean, everything that you said is, of course, absolutely spot on. Um, and again, this is one of those things that sort of like on a, a second viewing um, that I'm picking up more and more bits and pieces, especially with the animation, sort of the ones and the twos there. And um, I think especially noticeable, there's the scene where uh, Miles and Peter B. Park were sort of swinging through like the, the, the tree area and you sort of notice like, the fluidity of Peter B. Parker and like a Gwen Stacy in comparison to Miles, and then you contrast that to when yeah you know Miles has um, got through the leap of faith life lesson um, that he's been learned there, um, and he's in the full sort of black and red suit and in the fight with the kingpin as well. Um, then sort of how fluid he is there, and again it's one of these things that you can't really stress enough that like repeat viewings just bear so much fruit and joy and sort of touching on what we're saying earlier that animation really being a language all unto itself as well just everything that you're sort of picking yeah. up and um and how animation helps tell the story as well um like a part that i sort of clocked more specifically this time is certainly when after miles is bitten by the spider and it's after that point where we start seeing um, his like thought bubbles as well, and mm-hmm. so you get that sort of transition into the character also as well. Um, and also again, one that I sort of picked up, um, you get sort of um, the words uh, the, like the half tone effects that you see like throughout, or like the comic book style of the animation as well. And it's just, it's kind of one of those things like I, you know, can't even begin to imagine not working in that sort of field myself can't begin to imagine the kind of 
um like the love the care the attention the detail that all the people who worked on this the animators especially um to go through i think like we're saying a, a week to make a second um and this is like i think maybe just shy of a two-hour movie maybe 10 minutes shy of a two-hour movie thereabouts yeah. as well and then you just think like like a one second equals a week of work and it's two hours of like moving you just like I want to shake everyone's hand. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's the thing. And then you've got people who are just dismissing it because it's an in inverted commas, a kid's movie. And you're like, do you actually even appreciate the amount of work that goes into something like this? And that's kind of the point. I don't think anyone does. I don't think anyone really realizes, um, you know, just the tiny little details, the fact that um, in, instead of using motion blur, they use like smear. And that's basically when, if you pause it, when a character's moving, you actually have like multiple, like if they're moving their arm, they have multiple like arms in the shot. And that's kind of how it, it, it showed movement instead of motion blur. Um, and you, you mentioned obviously the comic book. Look, this is such a unique looking movie. Um, and I'm mm -hmm. so excited to see what they do with the sequels as well, because I think the sequels are going to be a level above this. I, I think it's good. They're not going to copy what they're, well, they're going to copy bits, I think, but they, I think they're going to take it another level um, above what we see here. Because one of the things that I've kind of, I've gone into a couple of times on my podcast, because I've talked about this movie, I've talked about the Mitchells versus the Machines, and I've talked about um, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. That's all Sony Animation Studio. Um, and, and I really do feel like it, that studio in, specifically as has kind of always been the the distant cousin to the disney and the pixars and because disney and pixar they do great work but i feel like they're not innovating maybe as much as they could and mm. then sony come along and sony are bringing us stuff like spider-verse and they're bringing us stuff like the mitchells versus the machines and it's stuff that looks unique and different and works like the Mitchells versus the machines looks like a watercolor painting. Um, and, and Spider-Man the Spider-Verse looks like a comic book and they're innovating all these really cool things to make these movies unique. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited to see what this studio is doing next, because I guarantee Sony animation is the next Disney or the next Pixar. They are going to be huge. Um, and it, it kind of started with this movie where that people really, stopped and actually took a look at what they were doing um but i still think this movie is actually maybe a little bit underrated um yeah. because of of what it is um because so many people are not willing to maybe give it a chance but i'm hoping that people listening to your podcast who are huge fans of nicholas cage may, might actually think well yeah this is a movie with nicholas cage in i've not seen it and you know they might actually fall in love with this movie like i think everyone who sees this movie falls in love with it absolutely and i like i have to agree like i think even now despite um you know you know all the uh sort of the positive press and accolades and sort of awards it's picked up over the time i do agree in the sense that i still think it is unfortunately quite underrated again like i said when it came out it seemed to kind of maybe come and go isn't quite the right term here but um, I think it came out the same time that Aquaman came out, and I think because that had had a lot of push behind it and Jason Momoa in the lead, uh, that sort of certainly in the US box office it knocked into the Spider Verse off the top spot. It remained there for a while, um, 
And I remember that I did go to see Aquaman at the cinema as well, and Into the Spider-Verse was kind of not really in my mind. I think it was still around the top 10 in the box office, but again, like I don't know if, if, if this was maybe a sort of... um hesitance maybe from the studios because you know this is like a bold new property that well uh, I, I guess in the animated term this isn't um you know it's not live action it's not sort of the tom holland um it, it's different spider-man mm-hmm. um so maybe there was some you know we'll, we'll push it to an extent but i suppose as you said we've got the two sequels across the spider-verse coming out part one and part two um now first and foremost and i'll put this on record I will be rectifying my decision and will see this in the cinema. I uh, won't make the same mistake twice there. But I certainly feel there's going to be... I think as we go into the months, we we go in towards later in the year when this comes out in 2022, I think we're going to see a big push marketing-wise. Oh, yeah. Um, I'd be very surprised if we saw any less. Um, Obviously, Oscar Isaac is going to be in it as Spider-Man 2099. There's going to be... and. Oscar Isaac's got a lot of fans out there, so I think Oscar Isaac's going to get some feature oh, yeah. going. <laughs> <laughs> would not say no to Oscar Isaac. <laughs> and it's a fair shout. Why would you? Um, obviously, at the time of recording, I think we're halfway through the live-action Moon Knight series yes. as well. And I was, I was sort of looking at this as well. I think there was five people in this movie, or at least who did voices in this movie, who have since went on to be in the uh, the live-action MCU at least. Mm-hmm. Six, if you count Nicholas Cage's Ghost Rider, but I've sort of said it on the before the podcast before. Um, it was the the MCU as we know it, starting with Iron Man onwards. It was kind of like everything before then was kind of like just here's a superhero film, here's a superhero film. It was it was like the Wild West of superhero movies. It was just we've got rights to a property, let's make a movie about it. Um, and not to say that there weren't good ones out there. Um, people will give or take. Ghost Rider um, and its sequel, um, but sort of the ones that you touched on earlier, and especially for me, uh, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies were um, sort of like, in a way, like my Spider-Man because I sort mm-hmm. of um, when, when would it would have been two thousand and two, I think, when the first two thousand and two for the first, yeah. I remember because I was, I think going back, I was eleven years old, so I, I was about about a few months off being like at the legal age to go and watch it. And I would remember because I wanted to see this so much because I like I loved Spider Man and I was almost in the point of tears when I said, Oh they're, they're not gonna let me in, I'm not gonna to see it and she's like, I'm just gonna tell them that you're twelve. I was like, <laughs> Oh okay <laughs> Um and then I remember going in and just sort of being blown away by sort of Toby Maguire and Willem Dafoe. And sometimes I think as well, um I think like Nick of the Cage was nearly the Green Goblin in that original Spider-Man was as well. Was he really? Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. He would have been an excellent Green Goblin. I think he I think he genuinely would have been a, you know, don't nothing, wrong. nothing against Willem Dafoe because I love <laughs> Willem Dafoe in that role, but yeah, I I can definitely see Nicolas Cage as the Green Goblin. I think it was I think he he I forget the the specifics of it, but I think he found out that basically Willem was up for the role and wanted it as well. And then he, he sort of like stepped back and said, oh, no, no you know, up to you, the role shall go. Um, but, it, it, you know, we sort of talk about, um, you know, the Nick Cage multiverse. You know, there is a multiverse out there where he was the Green Goblin, um, which I, I kind of think is one of these like great what ifs. Um, and this is another one of those... And I, li- I like to bring it up all the time, um, these roles that Nicolas Cage 
was in contention for or almost had and didn't take for whatever reason, um, such as him near to be an Aragorn in the Lord of the Rings films. We were very close to a Nicolas Cage Aragorn, um, and it would have made a great trilogy perfect. Um, and he was for a time um, the voice of Shrek as well uh, before Mike Myers took over. Um, and, and obviously, you know, Shrek's iconically got the Mike Myers Scottish accent, but I, I just imagine Shrek with a Nicolas Cage voice now and think, what a timeline. I'll, I'll be honest, I did not know that, and I did an episode on Shrek, and I did not know that. <laughs> so, yeah, all of the research that I did on Shrek did not bring that up, but that is, again, fascinating. I think I think there's there's a good um, argument to be made that for any film that you're looking into, just put Nicolas Cage in the search <laughs> next to it. I'm gonna do that now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the other he was, I think nearly in Dumb and Dumber, but he dropped out to star in Leaving Las Vegas, where he won the Oscar for. So, I think the right move was made there. Almost uh, Neo for a time in the Matrix as well. Um, I think a lot of stuff sort of a lot of these sort of certainly come around sort of late 90s early 2000s where I think I think the argument can be made he was sort of like the top of his stardom sort of coming out of the Oscar win and your con airs and your face offs and, and that kind of thing as well um, but now we've had him in four superhero roles um, obviously Spider-Man Noir Ghost Rider Big Daddy and Kick-Ass as you brought up earlier um, and he was the voice of Superman in Teen Titans Go to the Movies as well. Um, and I suppose speaking of roles, if if you may or may not know, he was there was an, a Superman movie stuck that never got made, but Nicolas Cage was Superman for about a few weeks before this filming got cancelled. I remember seeing the images of him in the uh, iconic uniform that basically live on the internet forever now. <laughs> it's kind of fascinating, the Superman... Uh, the images of him in like the, so those costume tests, like the long hair, sort of like a slimmer Superman. It's one of those things that every few months we're like, oh my God, did you know, did you know? And and every time I'm like, yes, I did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm very, very aware. It's like, you don't need to tell me. <laughs> it's like, just assume that I'm already aware of this link that you're sending me. Not that I'm unappreciative for sending some Nick Cage love my way, but... Um, I'm very, very ill when it comes to Nicolas Cage. Just assume that I've, I've, I've probably already seen it. Um, so we got, he got the voiceover role for Superman in Teen Titans Go to the Movies. Very great film, by the way. He has hinted, like he didn't outright say no, but obviously DC are doing all multiversal stuff via the Flash now, and he's dropped a hint that he may possibly could be Superman in that as well. Obviously, we'll see what happens when it happens. There's rumours that he could reprise Ghost Rider in the new Doctor Strange movie when it comes out. Um, but again, this is what I'm saying. Nick, Nicholas Cage, the multiverse of Cage is very, very real. Um, and, you know, if, if this podcast does nothing else, hopefully we're going to make believers into the multiverse of Cage, the MOC. <laughs> Well, I think because multiverses are definitely the way that everyone's kind of going. Um, and this is the movie that really kind of kicked off that idea because obviously the, the MCU as, as an entity hadn't really gone into the whole multiverse theory um, at this point. It's only in recent years where, it you know, we're talking about, um, you know, going from Avengers Endgame 
um, going through into um, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Um, and also, you know, Spider-Man as well, the most recent Spider-Man movie talking about the multiverse. And I kind of feel like this is the movie that kind of kicked all that off. It's not really given the credit for kicking that idea off. Mm. Um, but the idea that you have all of these different characters and you have, well, you have one character, you have Spider-Man, but you have all these different versions. And that in a different universe, you can have Nicolas Cage you know, as Spider-Man from the 1930s, you know, beating down on Nazis. And it's just such a wonderful representation of all of these different ideas of who Spider-Man can be, what Spider-Man can be. Spider-Man could be a kid called Peter Parker, could be a kid called Miles Morales, could be a young girl called Penny Parker. You know, there's so many different ideas of of the character of Spider-Man and what that could be. And one of the things that I love so much about Marvel Comics and Stan Lee, uh, and obviously Stan Lee as well. Uh, he has a cameo in this movie, and and I believe this was the first movie released post his death as well, because this was released in the December and he died the November. Um, so obviously he never really got to see this movie, um, but I feel like where Stan Lee was concerned with with the characters that 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 he wrote um, and that the other Marvel uh, creators wrote was that. They, they were never kind of tied to one different version. There was never one version of anything. It was like, you know, this movie says it, you know, anyone can be Spider-Man, Any, anyone can wear the mask. And I think that's really important, you know, when we're talking about representation and, you know, in this movie you have, a, you know, a half black, half Hispanic boy who, yes, he can be Spider-Man too, as well as uh, Peter Parker can be Spider-Man, as well as Gwen Stacy can be Spider-Man or Spider-Woman, sorry, um, as well as Nicolas Cage and, and all of these different characters. Anyone can be Spider-Man. And I think that's a really wonderful way to kind of say it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter the colour of your skin. You can be a hero too. And I really like that kind of idea that kind of goes back to what Stanley always said, that, it, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you come from. Everyone has the power to be a hero. Uh, and I, I really like that this movie represents on so many different levels for so many different people. It's, and this, I think this all goes back certainly into what you were saying earlier with um, some criticisms of animation saying that, oh, they're just for kids. But, you know, you look at a film like this and you look at the, certainly the message that a film like this has as well. And and again, what you were touching on there. Um, and certainly with the Stanley cameo, I guess, extra resonance. Cause I think this film released, I think it was about a month after um, Stanley passed away. Uh, and obviously Stanley's got the com- um, the cameo in the costume store um, when in the wake of, sort of the, his universe, his Spider-Man's death. And he sort of gives him the, the costume and he says, it always fits eventually. Um, and it's that, that that wonderful message that, as you said, anyone can be a hero. Um, and it's it is you know you, I said you can be a hero regardless of like uh, uh, race, gender, sexuality. If you're a pig, you can be a hero as well. Um, and Nicholas Cage was sort of talking in interviews about this. Um, sort of one of the reasons that. He agreed to the movie because um, one, he's saying that you know, as we sort of touching upon, you've got your um, 
I guess your your S tier superheroes. He said, you know, we've you've got your Supermans, you've got your Batmans, but he was saying for me, I think Spider Man is the ultimate superhero. Um, and he was saying in a film like this, you've got um, got a great representation for men, for women, and, and for animals as well. Um, so, the, and you know, this this is one of those movies I, I kind of watch, and again, we talk about the infinite rewatchability of this, but. Um, I watch this movie and I think, like, I don't understand how someone couldn't at least be, like, impressed by what's going on here. Now, I think, you know, there's always going to be someone... No no movie is for everyone and, you know, I'm not going to try and preach too hard to people who, you know, maybe aren't interested in it. But um, there is such uh, a, a universal appeal in this as well and... Maybe that is sort of part of the appeal of the enduring appeal of Spider-Man as well, um, yeah. because in, in in all the references to this, and I certainly think with some of the things that we're going to get in the sequel as well. I know in the sequel that they've said, um, I think it's Japanese Spider-Man that we're going to get as well. Um, I mean, if, if you've ever seen any clips online, um, it, 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 there was a live action sort of Spider-Man series in Japan where yeah. um, there's like motorbikes and Uzis being fired and there's giant robots um, and it, it, it's it's incredible stuff. I remember that um, my my mom once got me a, a VHS and it was of the, the live action Spider-Man TV series from the 70s um, and I was kind of like, what is this? And I put it on and I was like, it was just this jazzy saxophone opening, which I implore anyone to go and find because the opening is absolutely incredible. What what a soundtrack! Um, and I was, I suppose this is one of the benefits of guess having like a, a streaming service like Disney Plus in this day and age. Um, I always loved like the Marvel cartoons of the nineties, and um, Spider Man had a few VHS uh, sort of copies of uh, of Spider Man from the nineties, and there's been. Obviously, so many Spider-Man cartoons in the interim as well, but it's such it, it's such a celebration of the character also. Um, and you know, you were saying that you're a big sort of Marvelite uh, earlier as well. I, I guess you know when you watch this and you see that again, it, it is a celebration of Spider-Man. Um, I think it's, it's kind of hard not to find some joy in that as well, the love for the character. Oh, absolutely, and you know, I feel like. Sony have never, in the past, I think, always known completely what they wanted to do with Spider-Man. And I think maybe that's why some of the sequels, uh, like, you know, Spider-Man 3 and The Amazing Spider-Man 2, they didn't quite land. Um, I think, you know, Spider-Man 3 made loads of money, but I think there were problems with that movie. Uh, And I really do feel like, obviously, back in the 90s, Marvel sold uh, a lot of their characters, including Spider-Man, just because they were facing bankruptcy. And so they had to sell their most popular characters. And obviously no one wanted Iron Man. So (laughs) that's how we ended up with uh, the Marvel Iron Man movie in 2008, because they weren't going to sell Iron Man because Iron Man was a C-list character that no one wanted. But of course, of course they could sell Fantastic Four and they could sell the X-Men and Spider-Man. And... um, and I really love at the moment that there's this kind of uh, happy co-parenting situation going on between Marvel Studios and Sony. 
Um, and I think now that we're finally getting really great, consistently great Spider-Man live action movies. But, you know, going back to what you said earlier, this movie felt like it came out of nowhere. And I, 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 I agree with that. I think a lot of people didn't know this was coming. Um, mm -hmm. And then when they announced that they were doing this animated version of Spider-Man, again, I think people thought, well, you know, animated version of Spider-Man, whatever. Um, and I think this is the movie that literally came out of nowhere and blew people away as to what this meant for the character. And, and it is a celebration of not only Spider-Man, but, but of, of Marvel and, and Marvel's way of how they took this this kid from Queens, this friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man, and, and made him this iconic character that so many people love. Um, there's, there's, you know, there's so many people have respect for this character and what this character means. And, and obviously there have been multiple iterations of this character as well. I'm not a Spider-Man scholar by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> um, but, you know, the live-action movies have been fo solely focused on Peter Parker. Um, and to bring Miles Morales into this movie... Um, and what Miles Morales stands for, um, I think was was genius because it's it's basically saying yes, this is a story that we know. We've we've told this story so many times. Everyone knows this story, but this is a new story. This is about a new Spider-Man, and this is about it. It it follows the 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 kind of trace elements of the story we know, but this is about a new Spider-Man. Um, and I love the fact that this movie you have the opportunity to celebrate Spider-Man, as in Peter Parker, you also get an opportunity to celebrate Miles Morales as a character and to have those two characters of Peter B. Parker and, and Miles Morales together and to have Peter as the, uh, the, the, the tutor and the guide and, and to have Miles as, you know, this kid that looks up to him and their relationship is so wonderful in this movie. Um, and then at the end, I, I get so teary watching this movie all the time for so many reasons. Uh, the Leap of Faith, What's Up Danger, I mean, genuinely one of the most iconic scenes in modern cinema. Um, but then you get to the end and you get Peter B. Parker saying, kid, I'm so proud of you, I love you. And it's like, oh, waterworks, oh my God, it's the <laughs> sand in the room, you know. It's, it's kind of a bit like that. And you, but you see their relationship. Um, and it, it is a true celebration. Um, and I, I genuinely don't think that anyone could watch this movie and, and, and not fall completely in love with it. I mean, if there is anyone out there who does completely hate this movie, uh, <laughs> then, I mean, I, I, I kind of don't know what to say to you. <laughs> but yeah, this, this, this movie is spectacular on every level. And it's wonderful and heartwarming. And what, what's not to love about this movie? I mean, that is the question, is it? That's the... That's the uh... <laughs> yes. It's it's the infinite question, and um, sort of again touched on the sort of uh, the reverence and respect it has for the Spider-Man movies that have come before. I mean, you've got sort of numerous nods to previous live-action Spider-Man movies in there. You've got um, the upside-down kiss in there. Um, you've got sort of a, the train-stopping sequence from Number Two. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the infamous Peter Parker finger guns and dance <laughs> from Spider-Man Three as Wait, well. Um, and I, I think there's the very splitting sequence from Homecoming as well. Um, but then you've got so many nods to sort of like uh, the, the lore of Spider-Man. Um, certainly when 
the Spider-Men are getting together and they're in the spider lair or the spider cave. Um, there's, there's the spider bike, there's the spider jeep, yeah. there's all these Spider-Man costumes, um, even nods like the Spider-Man video games as well. Um, the Spider-Man Christmas album. Oh, <laughs> 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 I mean, oh yeah, there's, there's the, the popsicle, all of that sort of stuff. I mean, sign me up for all of that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I loved in the end credits as well. I think it's it's the last... Um, they're like two two minutes or so before you get the post credit scene. You get one of the the, the Spider Man Christmas album songs that comes <laughs> on as well. Um, I, I hope did they ever make a, an album of that? I hope they did, or at least released a song of it because that would be an absolute wasted opportunity. Yeah, if they didn't. I, I I believe they did. I don't know if it was like something on Spotify or something like that, but I'm pretty certain it was made available. I distinctly remember listening to some Spider-Man <laughs> Christmas album somewhere. I think it was Spotify. Um, but yeah, just genius marketing idea to, to have all of that. But it, it, like you say, it sends up the character a little bit. Um, but it also has so much affection for the character. And, and what I like as well is it makes it clear that this is a different universe where you've got the scene like where, where you're going through some of the older scenes you know where peter b parker is talking about um the kiss with mj and then it goes to the restaurant scene which i think is from spider-man 2 where um doc ock throws like a car through a restaurant and in spider-man 2 the car goes through that restaurant and i think it like it i can't remember if it hits them i haven't seen that movie in a little while but in this version because this is a different universe peter b parker punches the car out of the way and i think that kind of is a really good indication that this isn't our universe um because it it's kind of um shown on screen you know you've got all these different versions of movies like um you've got from um dusk till sean which is like a, a play on sean of the dead kind of in the background <laughs> yes. um just to show this isn't the same universe that we think we know which i think is is really good because in a lesser movie, it might have some, you know, some speech at the beginning and saying, well, this isn't the same universe that you know or something like that, you know, something stupid. Mm -hmm. Whereas this doesn't need to do that. It just shows you very subtle nods that this isn't the universe that we think we know. Um, and then obviously you have all of these other spider people coming through from their respective universes. And yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to see the sequel. I can't tell you. I can't wait until you can book tickets because... I will be one of the first to, to see the sequel to this movie because genuinely, um, what, like I say, what Sony Animation are doing for, for animation um, is so exciting right now. It's, it, it's incredibly exciting. I think it um, bodes well already that uh, the sequel, or I think very, I mean, let's be honest, it will be an award contention. Who, who are we sort of kidding here? And if it continues to do things like as it did with this movie, has it? Um, and I suppose by, by now we've got the groundwork of Spider-Man and the multiverse and such, and it can, you know, perhaps be a, a, a bit more sort of bold in where it's going. And I know they've released it was like like a, a test for animation clip or something like that, where it was sort of Miles and Spider-Man twenty ninety nine sort of fighting and falling into different universes and the such as well. Um, so. I, I'm very interested to see sort of like how this all comes together and where it goes as well. 
But certainly in this one, I think as you were saying there, it, it presents us with things that, you know, we've already seen with movies like this, but we get those fresh takes on them. Certainly every time there's a Spider-Man introduced, it's kind of like that um, narrated sort of like, okay, here we go again for the first <laughs> yeah. time, for the last time. It's like, I, I, I'm a Spider-Man of this universe. This is my backstory. This is what I've done. Um, like with the, with the, uh, the Peter B. Parker Spider-Man, he's like, uh, got a divorce, didn't want kids, got broke my back. Um, and then um, we've got that for Spider-Man Noir. When he's introduced, it's, um, I like drinking uh, egg creams and punching Nazis a lot. Um, and even with that intro, he's got like the wind billowing through his trench coat and Peter B. Parker is like, there's no wind in here. How is he doing <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah, we're like... in the basement. There's no wind. <laughs> so... Yeah, it's just part of his character. And that's why... I think that's why Nicolas Cage works so well in this movie because he is he is such an entity in his own right and Spider-Man Noir is such an entity in his own right um and I genuinely genuinely love Nicolas Cage in this movie I genuinely think he's perfect in this movie I don't think anyone else could have brought it, it's like a level of gravitas really because mm -hmm. you know instantly it's Nicolas Cage um <laughs> and like I say, I, I will never claim to be the biggest fan of Nicolas Cage, but I, as far as I'm concerned, this is one of my favourite things he's ever done. And that's not just because this movie is one of my favourite things, because it is, but I really, really love what Nicolas Cage brings to Spider-Man Noir and just little things like the Rubik's Cube. Like the fact that he's like, because <laughs> he's colourblind, because he's black and white, he doesn't quite get the Rubik's Cube. But then at the end, he gets the Rubik's Cube and it's like a little arc for him to, to kind of understand this Rubik's Cube. Um, I feel like we haven't talked about Spider-Man Noir very much, <laughs> considering, <laughs> considering that, you you know, you are literally the Nicolas Cage podcast. But um, yeah, I, I can't say enough good things about Nicolas Cage in this movie. And it, it's only a really small role if, if you kind of look at this movie as a, a, an ensemble piece. It is only a small role, but I, I really do feel like he makes such an impact in this movie. I'm sure you'll agree. I don't think you're going to disagree on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've called my bluff. I absolutely agree. Um, I, I think obviously the, the, the Rubik's Cube arc, where he's, obviously he's from a, a literally black and white world in the 1930s where he's fighting Nazis. Obviously, it's at the end rule, the spider... Um, the Spider-Men and Spider-Women are going back to their respective universes and he just has this complete bewilderment by the Rubik's Cube and he says, um, I'm taking this cube thing with me. I don't understand it, but I will. Um, and there's that like one shot of him at the end where he's he solved the Rubik's Cube and when it's, it's the credits at the end as well, you see him basically leading like a live show of mystery. It's like he comes to like the, the, the colour cube of wonder or something like that and he's presenting it in this like glass dome um, and I just love the idea that when he's not fighting Nazis and drinking egg creams, he's just got like a circus sideshow <laughs> with this Rubik's Cube and people from all over sort of 30s New York are coming one and all to see the magical Rubik's Cube. Um, and it's, like I said, it, it is a small role, but um, there is a lot of impact in it as well. There was, there's another line that he says. This is back in the, the the spider cave where the I think they're all trying to test Miles and get like a measure of where he is as a, as a spider person. Um, I think one of his lines is like, um, "Can you put aside your moral ambiguity in the light of violent acts?" And um, there's 
there's a few things that they have him say when he's fighting. Um, I think he, he there's a character called uh, Tombstone. It's kind of like a minor villain than this. And there's a brief fight scene. It's like five seconds or something in the midst of all these other fights going on. And he hits Tombstone and he says, uh, you hard-boiled turtle snapper. Um, and it's just that 30s lingo that he has in this, which is just pitch perfect. He was saying that um, he imagined that this Spider-Man noir would be sort of um, a fan of Humphrey Bogart and James Cagney movies and like the old hard-boiled detective kind of novels as well. Um, And there was a clip that Sony released. It's only about a minute long, but they put it out on their YouTube channel about sort of Nicolas Cage in this role. Um, And Nick Cage sort of said, um, oh, I think Spider-Man noir, he's going to be the edgiest of the Spider-Men and... Um, Paul Watling, who was the head of story for this, uh, said he was in sort of the um, the voice booth going through some lines, and uh, Nick saw the director making notes, and he said, um, "Do you want me to go full cage?" Um, so, and I think this is this is one of the things with like certainly at this point in his career, um, Nicholas Cage, he sort of, I think some people sometimes think like he's not in on this quote unquote joke, but he's very much aware of. I think his acting style, the perception of him, and and I think we're speaking to people about his work and reading up in interviews as well. Like he he knows what an audience expects from him. Um, so with this, he can sort of bring the caginess into that role. And and as we say, I think you could maybe count the minutes on one hand of Spider-Man Noir screen time, and it might be five minutes, maybe even ten, when you when you sort of look at it analytically like that. But again, in complete agreement with what you say here, um, because the the casting is so pitch perfect, as it is across the movie, I think it's important to add as well mm-hmm. um, that all the the Spider Men and the Spider Women, and especially Spider Man Noir, uh, like everyone stands out. There's not one um, Spidey from their respective universes that kind of sinks into the background. Obviously, Miles is the focal point because um, it's his story, but um, I think. Uh, all, all the Spider People just do so well, and then um, obviously Spider Man Noir. It's just the limited time we've got him on screen. It's just um, uh, just a joy, um, and I would assume as well. I think from the conversation, I think I think you enjoyed the Spider Man Noir screen time as well. Oh, how could you not? How could you not enjoy Nicolas Cage? And and. And I completely agree with you on the point. I think Nicolas Cage is quite a smart man. And I think he knows what the public expect of him. Um, And I think he knows when he needs to kind of play up his public persona, maybe a little bit in his Mm -hmm. roles. Um, Because let's be honest, I think any star in Hollywood, it doesn't matter who they are, they'll have a very public facing persona and they'll have a private persona. And I feel like Nicolas Cage is no different. He's an actor. His job is to act. Um, It doesn't surprise me that he would put a lot of thought and a lot of research into a role like this, you know, looking at, you know, actors from the 1930s and all of that. That does not surprise me at all because I feel like any actor worth their salt would actually do a little bit of research into the era of their character (laughs) and, and, you know, how, how how to make that character work. But... I feel like where Nicolas Cage is concerned, he he knows what people want from him. And, you know, sometimes you just need a subtle Nicolas Cage performance and sometimes you need him to go full cage. 
And I get that. Um, but I, and I, I do think maybe this performance is, is slightly more on the subtle end of, of, of Cage. But I, I like that he really leans into that, you know, even that kind of very old Hollywood kind of voice. It's still Nicolas Cage voice, mm-hmm. but it's, it feels more era uh, appropriate for the character as well, which I, I really kind of like too. I feel like where you've got animated movies that have these big name voice actors, um, if you look at slightly older Disney movies, um, you know, going into Renaissance Disney, it wasn't really until kind of the early 90s that we had big name uh, Hollywood actors voicing in animation. It was previously to that, it was people who actually knew how to voice for animation. So you actually had actors who were primarily just doing voices for animation. And it's only really, like like I say, in the last 30 years or so that we've had, oh, if you have an animated movie, you have to have a big name in your animated movie to sell your movie. That works sometimes. For, for some movies, you have a cast like this, who are literally everyone's perfect. Shamik Moore is perfect. Jay Johnson, perfect. Hayley Steinfeld, Brian Tyree Henry, Mahershala Ali, Nicolas Cage. Everyone in this movie is perfectly cast, like you said earlier. And then you have, I'm not going to mention the movies because I, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm particularly a huge fan of, of some of these movies, but some movies just cast for the name. So they're like, yeah. we want Angelina Jolie in our movie. So let's just put her in a role. And it's like, but you're not really playing to her strengths as an actor. You just want her voice. Whereas I think with this, they went, who's the best person for all of these roles? And they cast the perfect people for all of these roles. And they got to Spider-Man Noir. And I think they were like, well, we want someone like Nicolas Cage. So let's just get Nicolas Cage. And genuinely, I I think he is the perfect choice for this character. Um, And uh, like I say, I'm not really not his biggest fan. And I know that's probably sacrilege on this podcast. And I feel like I'm never going to be invited back again. But I really do feel like everyone was perfectly cast, but especially Nicolas Cage, because you wouldn't expect him. You wouldn't expect him to take a movie like this, really. But yet he's just so perfect in it. Um, but I, I mean, I think everyone's perfect in this movie. Uh, I guess I'm pretty biased. Just like you're biased towards Cage, I'm just biased (laughs) towards this movie. But I think this episode is kind of working, so let's just roll with it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for me, it's I I call it it's Cage Home Syndrome at this point. Um, I just 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 love the man, just love him to pieces. He can do no wrong for me. Um, I remember as well, actually, and obviously, I I know saying like ended up not seeing the film at the cinema, but I remember when sort of the stories broke that he was cast in this. And I remember just some headlines that just said, um, Nicolas Cage to play Spider-Man. And I was like, hold up, stop right there. <laughs> what am I reading? Because I'm in. Um, obviously, oh, he's a voice amongst uh, many voices in this upcoming animation. But I, I think I sort of agreed to the extent it's like, you wouldn't necessarily put uh, the Cage equation of Nick Cage and Spider-Man together. You'd be like, Oh, that's interesting. But again, we talk about this medium of animation uh, and it just works so perfectly here as well. I think it certainly helps with someone like Nicolas Cage, who is a big lover of comic books as well, who someone who certainly respects that medium of things. Um, and 
you know, with the name Nick Cage, he sort of changed his surname to match Luke Cage because he loved that character as well. Sort of stepped slightly away from like the Copeland namesake. Um, and he's a big collector. I think he, um, he unfortunately a few years ago had like a number of very, very valuable comics stolen in like a basically a heist on his home. Some he did get back. Um, I know there was a. I think it was a Detective Comics, I want to say 27, um, which was basically the first appearance of Batman that he had stolen um, and never recovered. He was doing a uh, an interview recently for The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. I think someone asked him, like, on the national treasure basis of things, like, oh, if you could steal the treasure, what would it be? And he was like, I just want my comic books back. Um, so That's I, a great impression. <laughs> I've watched so much Cage at this point. Um, and he, he was saying he just wanted his comic books back because he was kind of like, at this point, it's not even just for having, cause I could, because the, they'd be worth so much monetarily that I could just like donate them or something. Um, and there was genuine heartbreak in his eyes. And I was like, get this man's comic books back. Yeah, Go. it's sentimental value at the end of the day, isn't it? You can't put yeah. a price on sentimental value. So I, I get him. I get him completely. This is it. Like if um, if my Nick Cage standee, which obviously for the listener you can't see it, but it's a Nicholas Cage cardboard cutout. It's majestic, if... by the way, listeners. I have to say, <laughs> it's he's looking over every recording and giving us his golden blessing. Um, you know, it, it's been damaged. It's been through some some wars. But if I came home one day and that was missing, I'd be distraught. I'd be heart. <laughs> I'd be heartbroken if that had, that had disappeared. Um. And for some reason, I'm in possession of two Nicholas Cage sequin pillows as well. You, see, <laughs> you brush them and his, his face appears. Um, Which you wouldn't think that would exist. But I love that it does exist. Nicholas Cage and the internet were meant to be. That is all I'm, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, certainly on, on that line of thing. Um, and I know, I think a few weeks ago at the time of recording as well... Um, because there was some stories that came about sort of certain big directors sort of, um, I, I guess, questioning the superhero genre into itself, asking what kind of, you know, you know where does it sort of stand? And um, I think he won a lot of brownie points with the superhero community because he was kind of like, he was a defender of it, obviously kind of helped by the fact he's voiced and played superheroes, but he was, he's, Point was basically, um, you know, ultimately, if a movie brings you joy and it entertains you, why should we be criticising it? Um, yeah, that's fair. I mean, <laughs> we were like, yes, Nick Cage, the champion of reason. <laughs> I, I think it goes into his um, uh, the idea of Cage as well. Um, uh, there was another interview very recently that sort of, Okay, we, we've got this perception of Cage that maybe he just takes some bad films. He just does a lot of screaming because a lot of, he's quite memeified. A lot of things taken out of context, um, and I've seen enough Cage screams to know that they're always warranted. I'll, I'll put it out there. Um, and there was this article on Nicolas Cage for the BBC that sort of wrapped up saying um, Nicolas Cage is a, is a sincere man in an ironic world. Um, I think it's kind of this like this, this very sort of poignant way to sort of look at him and sort of the misunderstanding around him as well. Um, and it's and it's joys like this when, you know, we sort of circling back to what you said, so having that knowledge of Cage in the 90s when it was like the, the Rock, it was Conair, it was Face Off, and at that point he was an incredibly bankable 
action star, could have made a lovely living doing action movies. Um, and even though you've got some phases of cage, you've got you've got like a romantic cage, you've got an action cage, you've got sort of the art house cage. The joy of cage for me is um, never really knowing what his next project is going to be, um, because for sort of twenty eighteen that. You know, there were a lot of straight-to-video movies at the time as well, but this year for him, especially 2018, was was started with Mandy, kind of like a, a psychedelic horror film, which is now a cult favourite, and loads of people were talking about it. He ends his 2018 with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Um, you know, when he's 40 years into the career and he's still making such exciting choices like this, and um, whether it's intentional or not, you're staying so relevant, it's just like... Bravo, Nicolas Cage. Yeah, you've absolutely got to give him props because I think any actor who's been, you know, in the business for that long could quite easily just happily retire and just kind of say, well, I've made my money. I've got several properties. I've lived my best life. I'm just going to, you know, quietly retire, maybe do a bit of farming or, you know, um, vineyards. Celebrities love vineyards, don't they? Any Anything <laughs> like that. But I feel like any actor who genuinely still has a passion for the art and wants to continue working and wants to continue to bring joy to people, then who are we to say that someone like Nicolas Cage is past it? Or, oh, well, he was better in the 90s, so maybe he shouldn't be doing it now. Because I feel like, look, you say, he genuinely makes interesting choices. Not everyone might agree with the choices that he makes, but I think you reach a point as an actor and obviously, I'm not an actor, so I don't know. But I suspect you reach a point as an actor where maybe the roles you get are the same thing every time. You get pigeonholed. Um, you know, maybe they're, you do end up with all the straight-to-DVD stuff and you think, oh, I'm really, I just need the money and I just, I'm just going to do it anyway. But if you look at Nicolas Cage's recent career, he's making actually quite interesting choices. He's not pigeonholing himself. Because I think the two examples that you've, you've given, I've not seen Mandy, I've heard a lot about it, but I've not actually seen it. And, I, and I've heard a lot of people saying that it's really very good. Um, but if in the same year you can do something like Mandy and something like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and, and can consistently be an actor that reinvents himself while also still fundamentally being the same person that he always was, that's actually quite genius, really, because I think a lot of actors, they do have to reinvent, you know, they have to, you know, become a new version of themselves. Whereas Nicolas Cage is kind of always the same, Nicolas Cage, as he's always been. And yet he's he's still, like you said, the, the multiverse of Cage. You've got all of these different personas of Cage that really do come through in his roles. And kind of go back to what I said at the start, he's still <laughs> Nicolas Cage at the end of it all. And you've got to give the man props. How can you not give the man props for that? I mean, I think the best way to describe it, um, especially if anyone's listening out there and thinking of taking on a Nicolas Cage podcast of their own, I mean, one, do it. But the joy of Nicolas Cage is uh, that it's a leap of faith. Um, oh, I know what you did there. Yes. <laughs> yes. Emotional resonance in the podcast. Look at reinventing the wheels on this one. Um, it it is it's it's a leap of faith one movie to the next, but as you said, it's a different cage, but it's the same cage. And what you were sort of saying at the start, um, how he can be 
um, all these different Cage, like Stanley Goodsby, but also Nick Cage. He is the perfect representation of the duality of man. Um... <laughs> I'm actually thinking now, because I've got a little bit of time later today, and I'm thinking, I might see what Nicolas Cage has got on streaming, and I might actually watch something Nicolas Cage tonight as of recording, just to <laughs> kind of cement my Nicolas Cage journey for the day. I think it's the perfect bookend, and that'll be your leap of faith as well. <laughs> um, I think on on, on that, uh, you know, uh, I have to wipe the single tear from my eye, that beautiful <laughs> pitch-perfect ending there. I think it's uh, a perfect point to sort of start wrapping up the episode. Uh, but as ever as we come to the end, I think I have to ask for yourself... Um, um, if it wasn't clear from the conversation for the past hour already, what would be your sort of final thoughts on Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse? I mean, it's perfect. It's one of the greatest animated movies ever made. Don't discount it because it's animated. Embrace it because it's animated. Because this is a movie that everyone needs to experience. It's absolutely beautiful in every regard. Everything about it is perfect. The performances, everything. Um, and it's a really touching, heartwarming story. Um, yeah, I don't think there's anything in here that no one who's listening to this could relate to. I think there's something in this that everyone can relate to. Um, and yeah, it, it's take that leap of faith. And um, if you haven't seen Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse, go and watch it because you'll love Nicolas Cage in the movie, but you'll also love the movie as, as an entity. Uh, in its own right. It, it is genuinely one of the perfect movies out there. And I think that is a great way to sort of summarise it. Um, it is a great movie. It's, you know, 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, if you sort of take those things into consideration. Um, IMDb has it ranked as its 69th best movie, flanked by Dark Knight Rises and Joker. Um, I sort of remember as well, I put out a tweet earlier today saying, oh, if, if you've seen the film, let me know your thoughts. And Kevin Haney sort of commented, it has to be one of the best Spider-Man films, right? I think you are, right? I think we would agree with you on that. Hi, Kev, uh, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Not Just For Kids podcast says, it's a masterpiece, a rich, rewarding work that balances revolutionary animation, pitch-perfect humour, and an emotional resonance, I should say, uh, that has me crying throughout the final act. Miles' leap of faith is one of the finest moments of any film ever. Yeah, I like it. And I and I have to agree with Russell completely. And basically, he's just said everything that I've taken an hour to say, and he's put it in <laughs> one tweet. So congratulations, Russell. <laughs> the the nerve of him to summarise the nerve. <laughs> Um, and a, uh, another comment from Sarah. I'd go so far to say um, all Spider-Man films are bad, adding, um, I find the character very wet and the continual retelling of his origin story very boring, apart from this one, which is phenomenal. So I think that speaks wow. volumes there. Um, and a three-word summary from our good friends at the podcast nobody asked for. What a film. Um, and I think... Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Again, three words. I've taken an hour to say that <laughs> but yeah basically <laughs> if you want the, th the three word edited version of this podcast we'll <laughs> put that up at the same time as well um but again on that note um what a joy it's been and um, to have you join me on the journey to true cage nirvana this week to talk about into the spider-verse uh, for the listeners uh, where can we find you on them their socials interwebs and all that such well Daryl, I just want to say 
thank you again for DMing me and asking me to come on uh, for Spider-Man is the Spider-Verse because I've genuinely had the most fun um, that, well, the most fun that I've had today for definite. Um, it's been <laughs> it's been a genuine joy to come on and talk about this movie. And um, yeah, anyone who's listening to this, um, I am a, obviously a huge fan of animation. I, I've, I've made that clear. I'm, I'm not entirely <laughs> certain, but... Um, but yeah, I I do have a podcast. Um, it's called Verbal Diorama. You can find me if you want to follow me on like the socials and stuff. Um, I'm at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And yeah, my podcast is basically all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And I do, as, as I said, I have an episode on Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. It's a bit old, so the audio quality is probably not as brilliant as some of the newer episodes. Um but in that, I, I go into quite a lot of the, the animation and, and how they did that. And yeah, it's, uh, it's a joyous episode and I'm really, really proud of it. So, um, so yeah, I like to look at how movies are made, basically. So something like this is, is basically like a Sunday roast to me because it's just so <laughs> full of wonderful things that are really tasty and like fills you up. And it's, yeah, really lovely. Um, so, yeah, if you want to find my podcast, it's it's on all of your podcast apps. It's basically wherever you found this podcast, you can find mine. Um, and, yeah, come and talk to me about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse because I'm more than happy to talk about this movie. Um, and to be honest, if you've got a podcast, you generally like talking. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, anyone who wants to talk to me, feel free. If it wasn't clear, M really, really likes this movie. Yeah. Um, well, I like a lot of movies, but this one especially. <laughs> uh, well, all links in the description, as always. Uh, once again, M, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure to talk about this movie today. That brings this week's episode to an end. And thank you, dear listener, for listening. If you have been, we will catch you, of course, in the next one. But until then, as ever, keep on, keep on caging. It's all you have to do. Thank you, take care, and goodbye.